Turn to John chapter 3. And you might be wondering, why are we skipping over chapter 2? And I don't have a profound answer for you, except that um, I'm trying to, to squeeze the book of John all the way before, until, really until Christmas time. So I've got to squeeze 21 chapters into um, 15 weeks. And so um, John chapter 2, though, I'll summarize this very quickly. Uh, Jesus turns water into wine. Then he gets angry in the temple and throws over tables, all right? That's a summary of John chapter 2. Now, if you want to go deeper than that, you're more than welcome to do that on your own and read it for yourself this week. But John, that's a summary of John chapter 2 right there. Um, and then uh, we'll look at John chapter 3 today. And so the reason why I'm skipping over John 2 and focusing on John chapter 3 because I want to really focus this series on some stories of Jesus, his real personal interactions with people. And so you get these really long dialogues, like John 3 is kind of a long dialogue. And so, um, but what I want to do this morning, though, is there's, there's a movie that had come out recently where it's the entire book of John, like word for word. And so I want to show this scene today um, so you can see it visually before we read it here in just a bit. Let's go ahead and watch. While Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in him as they saw the miracles he performed. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew them all. There was no need for anyone to tell him about them because he himself knew what was in their hearts. There was a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. One night, he went to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you are doing unless God were with him. I am telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can a grown man be born again? He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the spirit. Do not be surprised because I tell you that you must all be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It is like that with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? You are a great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this. I am telling you the truth. We speak of what we know and report what we have seen. Yet none of you is willing to accept our message. You do not believe me when I tell you about the things of this world. How will you ever believe me then when I tell you about the things of heaven? And no one has ever gone up to heaven 
except the Son of Man, who came down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to be its judge, but to be its savior. Those who believe in the Son are not judged. But those who do not believe have already been judged because they have not believed in God's only Son. This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deed to be shown up. But those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the province of Judea, where he spent some time with them and baptized. All right, so for those of you that are wondering, Jesus did not have a British accent but he likes to have one in movies about him, just so you're aware. Um, so I want to give you kind of a visual of just, I know, I know those, those kinds of films can be a little bit cheesy because it's like, it's always bad acting, it's always the British accent, right? Um, but just to kind of give you a visual of this conversation with this guy named Nicodemus. And so look at uh, John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 21 today. So John chapter 3. And we'll take this verse by verse. So John chapter 3, here's what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So the Pharisees, many of you have heard the, the word Pharisee before. The Pharisees were like the religious elite in Israel. They were the upper echelon of, of Jewish people. They were the teachers. They were the people that knew the law backwards and forwards. In fact, um, I think the tradition says there was never more than 6,000 of these people in Israel at any given time. So they're kind of the elite of the elite. But then on top of that, there was something called the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court. And there's only 70 people on the Jewish Supreme Court. So there's, this is like the elite of the elite of the elite. And Nicodemus is a leader of those guys. So this is a really, really, really important guy coming to Jesus to talk to him on this evening. And this is also the same court, the Sanhedrin is the same court that ultimately played a part in killing Jesus. They worked alongside with the Romans and they ended up putting Jesus to death. This is the same group of people that did that. Tradition also says that this guy Nicodemus is in the top three wealthiest um, people in Israel. This is not scriptural, but this is traditional. Tradition says that he was one of the top, uh, in the top three uh, wealthiest people in the whole nation of Israel. So picture, picture someone who's like at the status of a Supreme Court judge, um, but also someone who's very wealthy, and put those ideas together, and this is the kind of person who was coming 
to meet with Jesus on this night. Nicodemus, it comes from the, uh, I thought this was really interesting. Nicodemus, his name comes from the Greek word, which is Nike, which if you have Nikes on right now, anybody have Nikes on right now? All right, one of you. All right, a couple of you. All right, so if you own, any, if you own anything from Nike, raise your hand. Just own a piece of clothing of any kind. All right, so did you know that the word Nike comes from the Greek word, which means victory? Did you guys know this? Are you aware? All right, so you're, you're ahead of the game then. Good. So, um, so this, is the, this is the Greek goddess of victory, Nike, right? And so his name comes from that word, and so his name means victory, but then Demas, the last part of the word, is the word for people, and so his name means victory of the people. Now here's why this matters. Because the Jews are living under what kind of rule? Roman, right? And so they're being oppressed by the Romans, and many people are looking for a political savior. And even in this guy's name, it means victory of the people. And so you can imagine, this guy's upbringing, his whole life has been about, we want to try to overthrow the Roman rule and keep them from oppressing us. And so it's even in his name, and so you can imagine that he's probably had this on his mind for a long time, and the Jews are looking for a political savior, someone who can overthrow the Romans and let them have their land back and their, their nation back. And so, um, in fact, this is the reason why the religious elite in Israel rejected Jesus, because they realized he did not come to set up an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. And so when this guy Jesus starts saying things like, that allude to the fact that he's God, they get real defensive and think, you're not the kind of Messiah we're expecting. We're not going to worship you as God. In fact, we're going to turn on you and we're going to kill you. And so um, this is what caused them to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so when most of you hear the word Pharisee, most of you think of something negative, which I understand why you think that, because that's in, in most of the scriptures, that's what happens. Jesus is, at, is at, the Pharisees and Christ are always butting heads and they're always clashing over um, these ideas. And so, um, but the reality is there were possibly a few, a handful of people that were Pharisees that believe. Nicodemus, it appears, is on the pathway towards belief in this story. But we're not quite sure why he comes to Christ on this night. It might be he realized he's from God. Um, Jesus has been doing miracles and um, he has heard about those, seen those possibly, and he knows this guy is something special. He knows he's not just an ordinary guy. So he says to him, we, I believe that you have come from God. I believe that you are something, someone who is from God. And what I want you to um, see in this story, it's pretty amazing that you see this guy who is at the level of a Supreme Court justice, a wealthy guy, Someone like this coming to Jesus who is uneducated, who is a carpenter, and the educated wealthy guy is impressed so much with the guy who is uneducated, poor, and essentially homeless, Jesus. And so Jesus must have done some amazing things to get this guy's attention. He was impressed with him to the point where he says, I think that you're from God. I, I know that you're from God because of what you've been doing in our city. And what I think is really cool about this story at the very beginning is that um, I think in our culture, we would all agree that to be a Christian is, um, is a difficult thing because in our culture, 
Christians are seen as ignorant and stupid people, right, in the, in the, in the greater culture at large. And so if you were to walk into um, large uh, media buildings in New York City, ABC News, CBS News, NBC, and admit to someone on television, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He's God coming in the flesh. I believe he did miracles. I believe all this is true. Many would look at you and say, you're crazy. You're you're kind of ignorant. That's just stupid that you would believe that. And I think it's really cool to, to see someone, even back when Jesus was still on earth, that was a wealthy guy, a guy who was smart and intelligent, but he was already starting to put his faith and trust in Jesus. We see it here at the beginning, at the beginning stages in the story. Because I think most people think that the early disciples were just a bunch of like backwoods, redneck type guys who were simple-minded, um, didn't, weren't smart people, right? And, uh, and, and so you see here a guy who's the opposite of that, a guy who's accomplished, a guy who's wealthy, a guy who's intelligent, at the beginning stages of putting his faith in Christ. In fact, there was a, um, I read a study recently, uh, University of Rochester in New York, in New York um, they did a study it's really a compilation of a bunch of studies together, but they, they, they declared that um, atheists, people who don't believe in God, are, have a higher um, IQ than people who do believe in God. And so this study kind of like plays into the hands of our culture, right? Where basically the, 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 um, the thinking is, if you're someone that believes in any kind of religion, then you're stupid and ignorant. If you believe in Jesus, then you're stupid and ignorant. You can't be someone who's truly intelligent if you say you believe this kind of stuff. And so they declare that atheists, at least when it comes to IQ, are smarter than people who um, believe that there's a God or have any kind of religion. So in our culture, if you want to be accepted, you've got to be the person who's cynical and skeptical. If you want to be, per- if you, if you want to be accepted by society, you've got to be someone who is uh, cynical and skeptical and the person who, um, who tries to appear smarter than the Christian by always being the cynic and the skeptic. And one thing I thought of this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, um, we shouldn't be surprised that um, we're viewed this way. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And when you read that, it's pretty cool because basically Paul's admitting, yes, God chooses the lowly. God chooses the weak. God chooses those that aren't as maybe intelligent with their IQ, but he uses them in ways that magnify God and magnify Jesus and magnify himself as opposed to magnifying God us. And what I want you to see here is that God values wisdom over intelligence, doesn't he? I'm not saying we should be stupid, ignorant Christians. You should know what you believe and why you believe it. But God values wisdom over intelligence. He values the heart and where your heart is at more than he values your IQ. Now, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of really intelligent people that are Christians. And we need people like that to be Christians, believe me. 
But the, the perception is out there that Christians are this way, and if you're, if you're really going to be smart and intellectual, then you can't be a believer. And this verse actually, I think, warns us against that. To, and, and we realize, no, God, God kind of set it up that way. God set things up this way. And so look down at verse 3 of, of John chapter 1, or John chapter 3, verse 3. It says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And at first, you, you kind of get this, this weird, like, freaky picture, um, like Benjamin Button or something crazy like that. Did you guys see that, that freaky movie? Anybody? That was... People said that movie made them cry, and it made me cry for different reasons, right? Freaked me right out. So, um, so you get this weird image here as he says this, right, of, of, of a grown man, like, trying to be reborn in some way, and I don't think this guy is that dumb. I think he might be being a little bit sarcastic when he says this response to Jesus, because this guy is an intelligent guy. He's not stupid, and he, Jesus is using words like, you've got to be reborn, to truly see the kingdom. And so in a, in a way, though, Christ's response doesn't really seem to fit the statement, does it? The guy comes to him and says, I've been seeing your miracles, hearing about them, and I believe that you're from God. And then Jesus says, what? He says, in order to see the kingdom, you've got to be born again, which makes no sense to what this guy just said. And I think here's what's happening in this verse, that Jesus knows the mind and hearts of everyone. And so he's kind of like, let's just cut the junk and get right to the point of what you're here to talk about, which is probably the kingdom of God. You want a kingdom on earth, but I've come for a different kingdom. And it's a kingdom that happens inside of you that transforms you personally, not just one that is imposed from the outside politically. And so Jesus knows what Nicodemus is about. He knows his thoughts. And so to the Jew, the kingdom is political, that a Messiah would free them from Rome. And so Nicodemus might be coming to Christ to discuss that kingdom, and Jesus peers right into his soul and says, if you want to see the kingdom, you've got to be born again. And again, his question is, what are you talking about? What does that mean, to be reborn? Because the Jews, the Jews believed that if they kept the, kept the law and lived moral lives, that they would somehow enter this kingdom that they knew about. And Jesus is saying that it's not about entering some political kingdom, some political structure. It's about being completely remade and reborn from the inside. And so you can imagine... Um, how earth-shattering this might have been to Nicodemus because he's this accomplished guy coming to Christ to talk with him and Jesus basically says, um, you need to be reborn. Like, you need to rebirth. You need to be transformed from the inside out. And if you look at this guy from the outside, he's not a guy that you would think would need that, is he? He's a put-together guy. He's a guy who is, has it together. He knows a lot of stuff. He knows the law. He is a leader of Israel. 
he is not the kind of guy that you would put in the category of, yeah, that guy needs transformation. I mean, this guy's got everything together externally, but Jesus says to him, you've got to be remade and reborn. It's an amazing statement that Christ says to him. In fact, one of the things I think we get from this story is that it's, this is where it relates to us, is that it's, it's really possible to be moral, put together on the outside. You're a churchgoer. You are a um, straight-A student. Your life is together. You've got everything together as far as our church culture goes, right? You're involved in stuff. You um, come from a good family. Um, it's possible to be all of those things while at the same time being completely and totally lost and apart from Jesus. In fact, uh, one of the things that drives me crazy is whenever we do um, baptism interviews at, at our church about twice a year, um, I've got to prepare myself every year for that because I really feel like I want to do it. I'm glad I get to talk to people through the gospel as we do the interviews. But um, the thing that always drives me nuts is somebody, somebody comes into my office and they'll say things like, um, I've been a Christian since I was born. Or, I've been a Christian since I was three months old. And I'm like, really, you remember that? <laughs> three months old, you, you uh, committed your life to Christ? And, um, and what they mean by that is, I come from a good family, I have a good background, I've always believed in Jesus. And to that person, I would say, but have you ever truly been reborn? Have you ever truly come to a place where you realize you are lost and separated from God because of your sin? And recognize your need for a savior. If you've never come to that place, and I'm not sure, I don't think you're a believer yet, until you come to that place. This is the thing that, that really I'm fearful of as a parent to my, my small children, because I know that they're going to hear the gospel. My son, my daughter are hearing the gospel almost daily from us to them. We're reading to them. We're talking about it. We're, we're trying to expose them to it. But I also know what comes with that is this great fear that I have that they're just always going to think that they've got it. They're always going to think that they're, that, they're, that they're truly a believer because of what family they're a part of, what church they're a part of. And so I've got to do the hard work as, as they grow, making sure they know this has to be your decision. You've got to decide, are you going to surrender your life to Jesus yourself you cannot inherit my faith or my wife's faith. And some of you in the room, you think to yourself, you think, yeah. You think that your, your parents' faith is something you can inherit, inherit from them. And you think that you're, you're a Christian, but maybe you're like Nicodemus, you're just a moral churchgoer that, that has it all together. Maybe that's you. And so many of us think that being born again means that we just get new behavior, but this passage means a lot more than that. Because when Christ, look, look at the words in, uh, in verse 3 and 4. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is that you can't see the kingdom of God until you are truly born again. And when you are born again, you, you see everything differently. It changed your perspective on everything. Everything looks different once you've been born again. Relationships, family, church, why we do what we do, all those things change. 
and you see them differently once you come to faith and surrender your life to Jesus. And so I want to um, invite you if, you, can, if you would say of yourself, if you would say something like, you know, I'm not really a believer, I'm not going to put myself in that category, I'm searching, I'm seeking things out, I'm not really sure where I stand right now, but I'm not, I would not call myself a believer yet. Um, I want to ask you this morning, if, if, if you're not a believer, what are some of the issues that are keeping you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus? What are some of those things? Because I will tell you this, that once you decide to follow Jesus, the things that you're, your hang-ups, the things that you're concerned about, the things that don't quite make sense to you right now, those things will change once you are reborn. Those things will look different once you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Here it says, when you're reborn, you see everything differently. And it's true of all of us. Whatever hang-ups you have, whatever things that, you, that are keeping you from following Christ, that don't make sense to you right now, whatever those things are, those things are going to change once you commit your life to him. Because you'll begin to see everything through new lenses. You'll see everything differently. Look at um, verse 5. It says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yes, that was a voice crack. You can laugh. It's okay. My wife loves when that happens. She's like, what? Yeah, there you go. Let me get some water. All right, let's try this again. Verse, uh, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not you do, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So once again, this is a very confusing dialogue, isn't it? You're like, what? Christ, Jesus, what are you talking about? What, do you, what are you saying you, as you talk to this guy, Nicodemus? And what he's saying is that don't be surprised that I'm talking about rebirth and being reborn. You should know this stuff because in Ezekiel chapter 36 in the Old Testament, it was evident to the Pharisees and the, and the, and the uh, rabbis that, that this was going to happen, that the new birth was going to happen, that they'd be reborn and the Holy Spirit would enter into them. And so he's saying that you should know this stuff. In verse 8, he talks about this analogy of the wind and, and this kind of stuff. And what he means by that is that you can, you can see the effects of the wind, but we can't see the wind. We can see the effects of the Spirit, but you can't see the Spirit. What he's saying is that the wind is powerful, but it's invisible, the Spirit is powerful, but it's invisible. And the point he's trying to make when he says this is that um, when someone's life is truly reborn, the Spirit like blows through their life and changes them. And the Spirit is powerful, but invisible. You can't really always see him working, but he's doing the work. This is why you, you've known people before that they'll tell their the story, and they'll say things like, yeah, I used to be like this. I used to be this person. And they describe their life to you, and you're like, I, I can't imagine you being that way. It sounds crazy that 20 years ago, you were like this, because now your life looks totally different than that. Which is partly why I love hearing testimonies, because it, it shows me how powerful 
the Spirit really is as He works in our life. Go ahead and do questions uh, one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one through four. I know that many of you probably aren't finished yet, but if you look with me at uh, John chapter 3 again, we're going to move on. I'm actually going to skip over a portion to save time because I want to make sure that we get to the, uh, the end here. Um, but look with me at John chapter 3, verse 16, because I want to make sure that you see the verse that you all know, John three sixteen, but you see it in its true context. You see it in the way that it, that it was actually being used. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if John 3.16 was being, was said to Nicodemus from Jesus in the conversation, or if this is something he said later on, and John just sort of put it in the, the scriptures here the way it, it is uh, laid out here. But, um, but if, if, it, if it was said to him, uh, said to Nicodemus by Jesus, how many of you ever realized that, that Jesus was the one talking when John 3.16 was uttered? Did you realize that? Did you recognize that? Um, if you're like most people, you just think of it as a, as, a, as a verse that John just wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But um, it's possible that Jesus actually said these words to Nicodemus directly, which makes it, to me, a, a very profound uh, conversation. So John 3.16, here's where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this is a verse that you and I know by heart. We know it so well that I'm going to say that you know it so well that you don't really know it at all, right? Like whenever you read it through scripture, you're just like, you read it and you're like, okay, John, I'm going to skip over that verse because I already know that verse, right, as you're reading through that, that chapter. But I want you to see this because if, if, he, if Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus directly in that personal conversation, here's the new um, meaning it takes on for me. He's talking to a guy that would be astounded to hear that God loves the world, like everybody out there that God loves them. Because they saw themselves as we're Jews, God loves us, we're the chosen people. And it would be crazy for him to think that God loved the world in its entirety. And I would say, I heard D.A. Carson say this, when, when Jesus says God loves the world, he's not just saying God loves the world in its bigness, but that God loves the world in its badness. In all of its badness, God still loves the world. And so here is a put together leader of the Jews, a Pharisee, a teacher of teachers, that is hearing Jesus say to him, God loves the world in all of its sin, in all of its garbage. God loves those people. Then he, then he goes on to say, he says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world because the Jews are wanting what? They're wanting the political Messiah to show up and show Rome who's boss. And Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn them. I came to save them. And I came to save you. 
so you can help save them, right? And so Jesus is totally turning this guy's vision upside down on what he is there to do, what his mission is to be about. So Christ is saying to a guy whose name means victory of the people. The people are going to prevail over Rome. He's saying this to this guy. He's saying this to a guy who wants victory over the Romans. But this guy may not have love for the Romans. To this guy, Christ is saying, God loves the world. And I know that God's love is something that we, if I surveyed the room and said, yeah, does God love you? You would say, yeah, of course he does. He's God. Does God love the world? Yeah, you'd say, of course he does. He's God. Of course he loves us. But I want to ask you the question this morning. Have you really let that truth sink down into your soul, sink down into your heart to where it transforms you? Because when you really reflect on that and, and understand like how much God truly loves you, it's going to transform you. It's going to lead to a rebirth. It's going to lead to you being completely transformed by his love. And I know most of us, um, every single one of us is wanting that from someone. We're wanting someone to care, someone to love, someone to love us, to care for us in that way. This is what drives many people into really unhealthy relationships, isn't it? They're, they're wanting someone to care, someone to love them, someone to love them in this way. And what you have to know this morning is that someone already does. Someone already does love you much better than that person ever could. And when you understand that and let his love transform you, it will change the way that you see everything in your life. It'll change everything. Look with me at verse, uh, in verse 19. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In this verse, in, in verse 19, it, it becomes really apparent that the more you walk and live in sin, the more calloused and hardened you come to the light. Almost where you can't stand the light. You, you hate the light. This is why people who are walking and living in sin, they have such a hard time ever wanting to pick up this book, be a part of a church, um, pray. I mean, those things are, why would you? I mean, you hate those things if you're walking in this kind of life. And so what I want you to see this morning is that if you're someone who wants to be transformed, you've got to understand that how much Jesus loves you to the point where it changes everything about your life. And the way that we know that we think, anyway, that, that Nicodemus was changed was because in John chapter 7, we see him argue and defend Jesus to the rest of that court. We see him stand up for what he believed in against the people that he was with, the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 19, we see that, that, he took, that, that um, Nicodemus took the money that he had, he took his wealth, and he went and bought a bunch of um, myrrh and aloes, and he put those 
and, and wrapped Jesus' body in those spices and those perfumes so that um, he could honor Christ in his death. And so we think, we think that Nicodemus took this message to heart and was transformed by the love that Jesus had for him. And he showed that love to other people throughout his life. And he was a transformed man. So the question is, will you be that kind of person? Will you be the kind of person that lets Jesus Christ and his love transform you in that way? Let's go ahead and discuss your last questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.